It is my privilege to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Dr. Sean, Sean Duncan comes to us all the way from Atlanta. I heard there was something with football, Ball State happening there yesterday. Anyway, Sean has a very long, impressive bio. He is the director. Um, he's part of an organization called Focus Community Strategies, and they have a, a branch of that called the Lupton Center. And just for some context, I read a book uh, about 12 years ago called Toxic Charity, and it was written by Dr. Bob Lupton, Lupton Center. And I came to this book because I was just, I was just wrestling with our approach to quote unquote charity. Like, is that really working? And I, I just had some frustration and some issues. And so I read this book, totally blew apart my notion of what it means to help people. And I realized all these assumptions that I had it's possible to have really good intentions and to actually do more harm than good in terms of not giving people dignity, not empowering people, not listening, uh, a, whole, a whole host of things. So I'm in new territory 12 years ago, and I've kind of been in this place in the last several years. And turns out in speaking with Sean, I'm not the only one pastor, organization leader, person who read this and was like, okay, now what do we do? And so the Lufton Center was formed out of this as a consulting agency. And they come alongside churches like us. They come alongside nonprofits to help them navigate how do we do this work in ways that actually leads to lasting change. Does that make sense? And so just a nice, wow, that kind of thing from the past that's come back around full circle. The point is that Sean is someone who spent um, really decades uh, working to find more holistic, dignifying ways to bring lasting transformation and development in communities and neighborhoods. And so he's going to be kicking off our Seeking Shalom series uh, right now, except for, hold on, hold up, I forgot one big part of this, sorry. Um, if you're not in a group and you want to be in a group, um, you can sign up in the, in the lobby. Right now we have 16 groups that are committed to going through this. Many are small groups that meet in homes. We also have some classes. And so as we said a couple weeks ago, this is going to feel a little bit more like a class. There's videos, there's discussion. It's all very, very well done. And there's even a book, like a workbook that goes with this. And so if you're doing this as a group or you're going to come to the class, please pick up one of these books. They're $10. They're going quickly. First come, first serve in the lobby. Um, and if you'd like to be in a, a larger group, if you're not in a small group, uh, for the next six weeks, Starting next Sunday and Monday, uh, we have a Sunday 9 a.m. group for college students, another 9 a.m. group on Sunday for, for the rest of us. Sunday night is an, another group at 6 p.m. and then Monday night at 5 p.m. You just need to go to one, okay? It's all the same content. So I highly encourage you to, to sign up for one of those uh, group sessions or, or classes and to pick up your book. Back on track here. Um, one of the reasons why we thought it would be a great idea to have Sean come speak to us about Seeking Shalom, a, a little detail is, Sean wrote this book. And so that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And Sean was very gracious and agreed to come again from Atlanta. So he, I mean, he wrote it. He knows us inside and out. Um, and so uh, just a, a very, very unique and cool opportunity that we have to hear from him. Last thing I want to say, and he's going to come up. 
got to spend some time with Sean. Uh, yesterday we hosted a community workshop for some of our community partners and other churches in the community, and it was a, a really, really meaningful, uh, encouraging experience. And I also got to spend some time with Sean and some different things we did yesterday. And I just want to say this guy is like the real deal. Um, he has many years of like experience in this and expertise, and I'm so excited for us to get to hear from him. So with all that said, would you please put your hands together and join me in giving Dr. Sean Duncan a very warm, common way welcome. Well, it's been a delight to be with you all in Muncie this weekend. Um, I'm really excited to be speaking to second service because Matt said uh, there's no time limit on how long we stay in for second service. So uh, first service got the like uh, spark notes or cliff notes, if you're a little bit older version, uh, like 15 minutes. So I've got the full two hours like ready to go. So you guys, you guys down for that? Um, no, it really has been a treat to be here this weekend. Um, you know, being on the road and traveling uh, and being able to be in different communities, uh, I never know what to expect, right? Because uh, normally the people that invite you to come or somebody from my team, uh, the people that are doing the inviting, they, they know about FCS or Focused Community Strategies, which is our organization, uh, and they're, they're bought in and they're excited and they want people to know more about what we do. But I don't know how excited all the people are that they're going to gather uh, for us to, you know, kind of be talking to. Uh, and so just being in all the conversations yesterday, there's just clearly a, a depth of thought and maturity and desire uh, to be good neighbors and to be a, a redeeming presence in this city. Uh, so it's, uh, it's always a, it's a, a more comfortable facilitating than just like directly speaking. Um, and so it was yesterday being up, like starting to throw some of those questions out to those who had gathered I'm like, all right, how crazy are these folks? I have no idea what they're going to say. Uh, but just everything that was, I was like, man, this is just so rich and so thoughtful. Uh, just, so it's just been a delight to be uh, in this conversation with you. Uh, I told uh, Matt and Lisa when we were, you know, speaking over Zoom the last few months, I was like, we, what our consultancy doesn't do is just speaking engagements. We're going to come in, come out, and then that's the whole story. Uh, we want to participate in a conversation that's already been happening, and we want to support it so that it continues in really healthy ways. Uh, and it's clear that this, this church, this community, other nonprofits and congregations have been thinking and praying and working deeply uh, to be good neighbors uh, and to respond to material poverty in ways that are really healthy uh, and, and redeeming. Uh, so uh, got in, do I have any puzzle people out here? Anybody like to do puzzles? You like to do puzzles? Anybody got, got a few? I hate them. I don't know what it is about my brain that maybe I got something undiagnosed. But I, I, even when I, my kids were little and they wanted to do like really simple like woodblock puzzles, I was like, no, this stresses me out. I don't, I, I don't, I don't do puzzles. Um, but I thought it'd be fun to torture my staff uh, with a little learning experiment uh, a, a few months back. So one of the things that's a, kind of a key part of the culture of the, the team that I lead is like we're really committed to learning and challenging one another constantly. So we have a uh, a weekly rhythm called Friday Freestyle, where we take turns having researched to present something to our team to kind of challenge our thinking, to really kind of push us forward into the stuff we're working on. Uh, and the reason I call it Friday Friday Freestyle, because it happens on what day of the week? 
See, man, I told you Second Service was a smart bunch. You guys, you were like really downplaying these folks. So, so it happens on Friday. And the reason we call it freestyle is it kind of say, like, hey, it, it, the, your presentation is totally up to you. You can do some sort of game. If you want it to be dialogue, you want to lectures, do whatever you want to do. Just challenge us to, to think in, in, in better ways. Uh, so one of my staff members and I came up with this like um, uh, torture that we wanted to do to, to the rest of our team. We thought it was a really fun idea. Uh, and so we, we put them in, in kind of in groups to do a little puzzle competition. And these are literally the puzzles that they were given to put together. These are the actual images of the puzzles they had to put together. So group one got this puzzle here, uh, and they had the box and some paper instructions inside of them, which I'm not, I don't do puzzles, but do you need instructions inside of a, I feel like it's like put this together. I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know what the paper said, but, but there were clearly some instructions in there. And, you know, as you'd imagine, all of the pieces were there present and ready to go. Not only that, but they were set at a table uh, in a kind of a quiet room with someone else at the table who had, had put the puzzle together before. So if they had questions and needed help, uh, and all of this is in a contest. Who can do this the fastest? And there was a prize at the end, right? I just bought some cookies. I, I didn't tell them that. I didn't, I didn't really know what to give them, but they know there's a prize coming. Uh, second group had, had all of the pieces, but didn't have the box top, didn't have the directions, and didn't have really any, any support. So for my puzzle people, what would you do if you didn't have the top of the box? Where would, where would you start? Corners, yeah, do the, do the edges. I at least know that, that much. I'd probably find two corners and get distracted and quit. That would be about my strategy of it. Um, and so it's getting, as you can notice, it's getting progressively harder. All right. So the, the third group didn't have the box, didn't have the instructions, and didn't have all the pieces. Uh, and they had some additional pieces that didn't actually go to the puzzle. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I should publicly apologize to Stephen for how depressed and angry he was about five minutes into this exercise. So Stephen, if you're listening, um, but, but, <laughs> and how we really were diabolical is like if, if the, the, this group is like, we had some charity people show up a, a few minutes in and be like, Hey, do you need some extra pieces? We, we have extra, we're going to give you extra pieces. And those pieces didn't actually belong to this puzzle either. Weren't, weren't useful at all. Just were, were more pieces. Uh, and so the idea behind this scheme, uh, this traumatic event, uh, was uh, this, is, this is what it's like depending on what neighborhood you grow up in, right? You know, you grow up in some neighborhoods, like you got all the pieces, you got support from people who have all the pieces, you got the instructions, you got the box, you got everything, right? And it progressively can be very different. Yet where we grow up can so radically determine the outcome of our lives, which is why FCS does neighborhood-based work, as we're trying to change the ecosystems of neighborhoods, not just serve individual people. So I give this example, really, first of all, to help you to realize that I am not the real deal. I'm not a good person. I'm really cruel. That's what I feel like Matt set me up for, to be something I'm not, so you should know that's not true. Uh, and also to say, I think this, this kind of metaphor of puzzles is really where I want us to live today, uh, is that I think that for a lot of Christians, the... The, the box top that we're looking at isn't the image that God is aiming us towards, right? That we have all the right pieces, right? We have all, all the correct pieces to the puzzle. Your life has all the pieces that you're supposed to have. But I think the picture that we're, we're assuming that the direction God is leading us towards isn't, isn't the picture that, that God intends. That we've got all the right pieces, but we've kind of got the wrong picture. 
which might work out okay if it were one of these. If you're not me, you're probably smart enough and patient enough to pull this off, unless someone was rude enough not to give you all the pieces, right? Uh, but the reality is, like, we all kind of know life is not a 30, you know, 50-piece puzzle. How many, how many pieces do you like in your puzzles? At least a thousand. At least a thousand. Oh, my gosh. I just, like, I've, how many? 500? Oh, God, I feel like, like indigestion just thinking about that. It's just so stressful. I don't know. Anybody, anybody else stressed out by puzzles? Is this just me? I don't know. Maybe I've got something. Thank you. Thank you. i got one friend. i got one friend in the audience. Thank you. Um, that we're operating as Christians often with an end game that isn't God's end game with, with what we're up to. Uh, and so if we're going to put together this puzzle, if we're going to live our lives well, if we're going to follow Jesus well, um, we may need to reorient what, what, what the picture is on the top of the box, uh, that maybe we're building something a little bit different. You may be familiar with a, a pretty popular book that's been out for a long time about the, highly, the seven habits of highly effective people or whatever that, that title is. And one of the habits of being highly effective is this idea of beginning with the end in mind, which is generally good advice on kind of whatever you're doing. If you're planning for vacation, kind of what you put in your suitcase is going to all be determined by where you're headed, right? If you're headed to the beach versus you're headed to like snowy mountains in Colorado versus you're headed out to like hike 100 miles, like wherever you're going, whatever the climate is, the, the end, your destination is going to determine all the decisions you make on how you prepare, right? Uh, or at work, right? The goals that you set for yourself, for your team, for the staff, for where you're headed, that all determines your daily decisions. This is where we're headed, so we have to do all of these things to get there, right? Uh, and so I think, again, my guess is that for too many of us as followers of Jesus, the end that we're aiming towards is inconsistent uh, with what Jesus is inviting us into. And maybe there's a reframing that we, we could do. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, I think when we think of the end, the end game for believers, for Christians, uh, is this idea of the soul, kind of the body gets buried in the ground, the soul in this like disembodied ethereal something or another just floats up into the clouds to be in some sort of spiritual plane for all of eternity. Maybe there's some harps. I kind of like the guitar a lot better than the harp, but you know, we'll see how it all plays out, right? Uh, so we kind of see this soul that floats up into the clouds. And that's kind of the image that we're seeing on the box top. Versus the image that's in the New Testament is physical bodies and a physical earth, a physical city, a physical place where we dwell with God. And so I think there's some pretty massive um, implications of when we think the Christian journey is about getting our soul into the clouds with the angels Versus the Christian story is about a resurrected body and a resurrected earth, right? That depending upon which image we're aiming for is going to change the way we make all of our decisions and how we live out our faith. And here's some of the implications. I think there are many, but here's a few that I think are worth processing. Um, that if we have this box top image of the disembodied spirit soul floating up into the clouds, uh, a lot of our, our religion, a lot of our faith is going to be about personal morality, Right? This is just about me doing all the things I'm supposed to do and getting it right so that when I die, I'm in the good place, not the bad place, right? Uh, and there, there's kind of this narrowing focus around my, my daily choices and my ethics and my behaviors and my morals, right? Not that morals or ethics are, are irrelevant, but it becomes this kind of isolating way of approaching life, 
right? Even, you've probably heard this before, like when you enter into worship spaces, people say, well, just leave the concerns of the world at the door and come into God's presence. Like, why are we dropping the world at the door? (laughs) I think for God so loved the world. Yes, so God's interested in what's happening in the world, right? And so what does it mean to, to not live in this kind of isolated, this is about my own personal journey kind of way? And when we do that, I think it means, it ends up we have these disconnected lives. Like, this is our spiritual part, and this is our like vocational part, and this is our, our financial part, and this is our relational part. So we, we kind of disconnect faith and the work of God from all these other components that are spiritualized versus our real lives or something, you know? And in all of this, we end up kind of distrusting the body. It just is about this, the soul connecting with the spiritual entity in the sky versus our bodies having so much to do with what it means to be a part of God's work in the world. I mean, the, you know, a lot, most of our songs, our worship songs revolve around the cross and the resurrection, which they should. Those are good things. But for me, the thing that I almost still can't get over is the idea that God became a human being, right? Uh, that, if there, that, that there wasn't, that if God didn't intend physicality and human flesh, if God didn't believe in the sanctity of the human body, God would not have become one, right? Um, there is an overwhelmingly disproportionate number of Jesus's words that happen in the same context around a table eating food, which is good news for me, right? Like we, last night we met, there was lots of barbecue and wings and so much ridiculous volume of food. And I'm like, I don't want this to not be a part of whatever's coming next. This is really delicious. Uh, and to think about and what, you know, Jesus's first miracle, right, was like turning water into wine, and it was at a wedding. Seems like if you're going to like introduce yourself as son of God on the stage, you ought to do something a little bit more important than just crack open some bottles of wine to celebrate a wedding, right? Like, what does that have to do with the spiritual realities of our world? I think Jesus would say everything, right? Uh, that there's not this disconnection between the body and spirituality and the world and what God is up to, that all of this is together. But so I think when our box top, our, our, our puzzle, uh, is not a soul floating into the clouds, but our, our vision of the end is a resurrected world with resurrected bodies, with physical space and flesh and places, that all of a sudden things begin to shift in the decisions we make to live out our lives. One of them is we shift from this like personal morality thinking into this collective responsibility that I belong to you. You belong to me. I belong to the city and the city belongs to like I am a part of and responsible for the world around me as it's responsible for me as well. I got to get my head up out of the weeds of my own daily choices and understand how I fit in the ecosystem of this city and what it is to play out my role in all of that, right? Which means instead of kind of leaving the world at the door or treating the world like it's a distraction or the world is something that gets in the way or whatever, it's like, no, I'm, I, because of my faith, I am deeply rooted and engaged in the world around me. And how do I flesh that out literally day in and day out? Which leads to a more integrated life, like where you choose to live, what job you choose, what you do with your money where you eat, how you interact with your neighbor. Every part of our existence then becomes a part of what is God up to in the world? Which then means like my body is not something to distrust or discount. Uh, Food with my neighbor is not just 
food with my neighbor, but that's a sacred exchange. You know, the church orients itself around communion or the Eucharist, the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine. And for many, many years at the outset of the early church, it wasn't like a quiet little reflection with a tiny small cracker and a tiny small sip of juice. People were at a, a table. They were eating a meal together, and that was sacred, right? Uh, so I think when we shift the image from a soul in the clouds to a body in a city, a body on the earth, all of a sudden, all of it starts to matter, that there isn't spiritual versus physical, that we take all of it. So this uh, is, a, is a quote that I find to be useful, helpful, encouraging to, to frame this. Uh, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, this has been used and misused as a quote by a number of folk, and I think where it gets misused is it's one more way of thinking about individual religion, of saying like, hey, kid, every part of who you are, God's watching, right? And he wants to, uh, total control over everything you're saying and doing. Okay, like, well, okay, we can build a case for that, but that's not what this is getting at, right? This is seeking to say all aspects of our world, God intends redeeming work in those spaces. The zoning laws that make up the city of Muncie matter, right? Transportation access matters. Quality schools matter. Access to healthcare matters. Like, all that makes up the domain of our human existence matters. Um, every piece of what we're up to. So there's a few scriptures that I find to be instructive and helpful in kind of framing this different box top, different image. Uh, the first is from Revelation, which is the last book in that Bible. So it kind of is a lot of that, that stuff in Revelation is pointing to the top of the puzzle box, right? Uh, in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. So one thing I think we have to overcome is so often when we use the word heaven, we are picturing this like spiritual kingdom up there in the atmosphere somewhere. When majority of times when this word is showing up in the New Testament, it's talking about the sky, the heavens. It's not talking about like heaven as in a dwelling of God, but it's talking about like just the clouds, the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun, these things that are not on the ground on earth, right? And so what the writer is saying is the vision I was given was a new heavens, new sky, new clouds, new stars, new earth, that all the physical things that God has made were then remade, that that's the end we're moving towards. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Uh, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So it's a, it's a city that we're moving towards, not a, not, a, not a cloud. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What would it mean for us to filter all of our life's decisions, choices through this idea of how am I 
participating with God and making all things new. All things. Not just my prayer life uh, or my church attendance or whatever. All things. All things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Another one, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It doesn't say the soul will rise up out of the dirt and float into the clouds. That our, uh, We will do away with the perishable body and be given an imperishable one. But it's still a body. Think about when, when Jesus was resurrected, there was a physical body. You could actually touch his wounds, which is really fascinating. That the wounds didn't disappear in the resurrected imperishable body. And that Jesus... When he announced his resurrection to some of his disciples, he wasn't, didn't know yet, he's over on the beach cooking fish, and he eats with them. Another piece of good news, the end game will allow us to have food, <laughs> you know, uh, that, there's, that this change we're going through is not from physical into non-physical, it's from a perishing physicality into one that won't perish, that there's a newness being made. In Philippians 3, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's, this is talking about the, the resurrected body of Jesus, that, that these bodies we now have will become like the body of Jesus when He was resurrected. His glorious body will be ours by the power that enables Him even to subject all things, all things. Again, there's not an aspect of the human domain the Christ isn't saying mine. In Romans 8, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning. So not just people, but creation itself is aching for this renewal that God intends. Not aching to be thrown away and disappear because the physical earth no longer matters, but it's aching for its own renewal. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And to me, this says that to follow Jesus is to ache. And what I don't mean by that is you're like miserable, sad, depressed, and angry, disappointed all day long. I'm saying that to follow Jesus means that you are driven by an aching to see all things remade. That when you see the world, you don't see it through the lens of like, oh, this is just my job, or this is just school, or this is just friends, or this is just what. Oh, but over here is my spiritual peace. That's when I'm praying and reading my Bible and going to church. But the rest of it's kind of out over here that we ache to see every aspect of the world around us reflect the renewal that God intends the hope, the grace, the justice that God intends in our world, which to me adds a whole different light to this, the Lord's prayer. When the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus, teach teach us how to pray. We see you doing this. We see that this is so a part of how you live and breathe. Like, teach us something. And so he gave them this prayer. Uh, And a part of it, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven meaning that the ways of God would affect every aspect of the world that we inhabit. And so I think uh, one of the things that I began to practice years ago uh, was replacing earth with 
the name of my street. You know, uh, replacing earth with the name of the town or the city that I'm in, right? Uh, it's one thing to pray this prayer in a, in a church setting with church people who all have a common belief. It's another thing to pray this prayer sitting at the gas station or at the bank or at your desk, at school or at work, that on this earth, in this classroom, in this building, in this city, on these streets, just as it would be in heaven. And I know there's a lot of language in Scripture that we have to contend with to, to, to think through this. That there's a lot, especially Paul and his letters, uh, there's a lot of contrasting of spirit versus flesh, which has kind of been misinterpreted to mean like physical things bad, non-physical things good. Uh, but I want you to think about uh, that spirit versus flesh as a, as a contrast that's not trying to aim towards physical versus non-physical. That that's not the contrast Paul is trying to set up. Uh, for example, think about this. When we talk about being guided by our heart versus our mind, what are we saying? We're talking about our emotions driving us versus our logic or our intellect. You know, uh, this may shock all of us, but like emotions don't come from your actual heart, <laughs> right? Uh, this organ, as important as it is, and it's beating blood through my veins, but when I feel things, it doesn't come out of my actual heart, right? It's, it's all coming from my, my mind or my brain, right? That's where that stuff originates from. But this is a helpful contrast when we're trying to find language to say, is this emotive or is it logical? Is this intellectual or is this feelings? What, what are we talking about here? And so when Paul sets up this contrast, he's not contrasting physical versus non-physical. He's talking about the will and the ways of God versus the will and the ways of mankind, right? Uh, and that spirit is about being driven by that ache for the renewal of our bodies and the renewal of our cities and the renewal of all of creation. And so for us, uh, this is very practical. Um, we are a neighborhood-based nonprofit community development organization, uh, and we do a lot of work uh, in what I would call practicing resurrection. Wendell Berry is a poet that I love, uh, and he has a, a poem that ends with this line, that tells us to practice resurrection. And I love that. It's one thing to say, well, to be a Christian, you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's another thing to say, well, being a Christian should mean that we're practicing resurrection. And what, what that means is, how do we see things that, have, that, that are dead? Where do we find places where life has been removed? And how can we do the work to bring life back into those places? So this building here uh, is a grocery store in the neighborhood where FCS is working. Uh, Prior to that, it was a lot of different things, and it was a lot of things that were damaging and harmful to the neighborhood. Uh, and in practicing resurrection, taking this property and turning it into a grocery store in what used to be a food desert, meaning the residents of this neighborhood lacked affordable access to groceries, healthy groceries that are affordable. Uh, meaning if they're using public transportation, it's going to take them two hours round trip to get to affordable, healthy grocery options. Right? And so the practice of resurrection, the belief that all of what we see around us, God is concerned with that. Not just my prayer life, but God cares about my neighbor's access to vegetables. That matters, right? And so when we look at a neighborhood, we're thinking through this idea of what does it mean to see all things made new? Building, not just people in their spiritual lives, but buildings and streets, neighborhoods to be made new. Uh, this used to be Harold's Barbecue. Uh, 
Uh, fun fact, this may shock you, it's not currently in operation. If you can't tell from the, uh, from the, the, out, the, the, the front of this, you can see the smokestack where the, the barbecue used to be, be smoked. Um, so this image uh, showed up in a video on Facebook uh, from a church in Atlanta who was raising money for their inner city programs. Uh, and not only this image, but I, I recognized a couple of the other images they used in that video uh, to kind of pluck the pity strings to get some donations for this ministry. And I remember being, I might have a temper problem, uh, I remember being really angry uh, when I saw that because I, I, I was like, we own that building. You're, <laughs> like you're, you're using a property that we own to raise money for a ministry that doesn't happen in this neighborhood, and you're telling a story that's just not true about this neighborhood. Because what they didn't put in that video you know, uh, was this, right? What they didn't put in the video were the beautiful houses that have been built and restored and the families are living in. Like, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't use any of these images. They just used this one. One that we own and are currently in the process of practicing resurrection with. What does it look like to bring life in this blighted spot, right? Uh, so what we're moving towards with the old Harold's barbecue is something currently called the district. We're still, it's all, all in planning stages. So this is a container park that will host uh, small business owners. So we've been in partnership with a local university for the last few years, uh, offering an entrepreneurship training to people who often can't afford or get access to high-level entrepreneurship and business training at a, at a private university level. But this is a private university who's offering this in a way that more people have access to it. So we're a partner in that that approach. And as we've been doing this for a few years, we're beginning to say like some of these folks may begin to take off and they need some affordable office space to to run their business out of. How could we, one, turn a block that's that's vacant and blighted into something that not only has the use of some office space for our entrepreneurs, but also some entertainment and some restaurants. And how do we, how does this block not become a place of death, but a place of life? And how can we be a part of that? Because, again, in our minds, there's, there's nothing that Christ isn't saying, mine. I want to see life and hope and justice and peace, shalom, restored in our communities and all aspects of it. Um, so I'm going to invite Matt to wrap us up here in just a minute. But you guys are about to begin a series called Seeking Shalom. Uh, and so we're deliberately vague at some level about using this language of seeking shalom. Like, what in the world are you talking about? How do, what is shalom? Where is it? How do you seek it? How do you find it, right? Um, that we're trying to invite people to a much bigger and robust pursuit. That most of our work when it comes to poverty and charity and ministry or outreach or volunteering, whatever language you might use, really boils down to we're just trying to meet people's needs. And that's not a bad thing. If someone's in need, to meet that need. If someone is hungry to eat with them. Don't feed them. Eat with them. Like, meeting needs is not a bad thing, right? I just think it's too small a thing. It's just, it's, it's an image on the top of our puzzle box that just ain't worth building towards, right? That the, the image we're moving towards is all the stuff I just talked about, shalom, where all things reflect the goodness of God, whether it is zoning codes in the city of Muncie, or it is streetlights, or it is safety, or it's schools, or it's just our relationship to our next door neighbor, that all of that should be reflecting God's peace, God's renewal, God's goodness. And so the shift you'll be invited to make, if you join the Seeking Shalom study over the next six weeks, the shift you'll be invited to make is let's stop thinking in terms of meeting people's needs. 
which often focuses on momentary things and often focuses on individuals who are in a pain point in their lives. Let's shift from that and this idea of seeking shalom, away from meeting needs into seeking shalom, which means we care about the flourishing of the entire community and all things that that might mean. And so I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with one encouragement. As you begin this this six-week journey in seeking shalom, I really want to invite you to enter with curiosity and questions, not certainties or answers. Uh, I appreciate Matt talking about me being involved in this work for decades with an S. Uh, That felt a little insulting. But, uh, you know, uh, I can say this. I've been a part of FCS for 10 years, uh, working in this world for longer than that. But even after 10 years of being a part of an organization that I think is a leader in this field, uh, I have just as many probably more questions now than I had 10 years ago when I started. Because poverty and the social challenges that we're addressing are so complex. They're so hard. They're so deep. Uh, And the most dangerous thing we can do entering into a study like this is to come in with a lot of certainties about poor people or about poverty or about poor neighborhoods. We've got to let those things go and come in with lots of curiosity, right? Uh, to what Matt said earlier, to come in with a posture of saying, like, how do I need to be changed so I can be used by God for change in this city? It has been such a delight to be with you guys. I really thank you for your time uh, and the journey you'll be on in the next few weeks. Thank you. Sean, thank you so much. Um, just we appreciate you being here and setting us up and, and sharing with us for the weekend. Um, I got to hear that twice along with yesterday and just the whole time I'm just going, yes, yes, yes. And he just shared a lot with us, but I, I hope you kind of are sitting with how important it is to know where we're, what the end is. What's the picture? Because if it's just private morality, if it's just my own little personal relationship with Jesus and be a good boy and get other people to get a personal relationship with Jesus, to go to a disembodied heaven somewhere else, it's the wrong story. It's not the biblical story. Jesus says, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, that's where this is going. And so I love that phrase, practicing resurrection, not just believing in it. And that's what we're going to talk about. What What does that look like? Just a quick story, because we have a few minutes, a minute. Um, I was at a conference one time, and a speaker, kind of a provocative theologian, philosopher named Peter Rollins was talking, and there was a Q&A afterward. He's pushing people's buttons, and they said, so tell me, do you deny the resurrection? And he said, and he had a, he's from Northern Ireland, so awesome accent. He said, I'm not going to do it. But he said, yes. And everybody in the room, all these Christian pastors are like, oof. This guy must be way out there. And he goes, yes, I deny the resurrection. I deny the resurrection every time I see my brother or sister in need and don't do anything about it. I deny the resurrection every time I see someone different than me and consider them another, another than me. I deny the resurrection every time I settle for a vision less than the renewal of all things. So that's what we're going to talk about, and it's going to get interesting. And we like to do this division thing where we say, well, Jesus doesn't get into systems and structures and politics. That's crazy. He stood in front of a temple 
the, the pinnacle of religious and government life and said, destroy this thing and I'll build it again in three days. He goes in the temple, overturns the, the unjust money change. He, he's very much involved in systems and structures, but that's going to mess with us. So how do we do this in ways that are helpful? Next week, we're going to look at how our, our well-intentioned charity doesn't get at the root problem, doesn't get at the, the structural issues uh, and the deeper things. So I hope you're ready for this. I'm excited about it. I, w- I want to, again, ask us all to be open and ready for where God leads us. One final reminder, get your book. If you haven't signed up for a group, this is different than anything else we've, we've really ever done. So again, can we put our hands together for Sean? Thank you so much. Uh, would you stand with me? Um, just a reminder that <clears throat> we're going to have some folks up front. If you have a need in your life and you'd like prayer now in person, uh, you can share as much or as little as you like with them, but come forward. We have folks who would love to pray for you uh, uh, even right now. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for this incredible story that you invite us into. We often settle for for something far less um, to the detriment of our own souls and the people around us and and the world that we live in. So I pray that you would broaden our view, that we would see the world the way that you do. It's amazing to me that you invite us to co-create or that you do like the, the heavy lifting but that you invite us in our relationships and our conversations and with our jobs and our our neighbors to join you in the renewal of all things. I pray that we'd have the courage uh, to, to lean into this, that we'd have the humility to be open to ways we may be wrong. And I pray that you give us the grace as we wrestle with this to, to love each other and to to make mistakes and to disagree well. But at the end of the day, that as a result of our lives, as a result of this church being here in this city, that your kingdom would come more fully, that your will would be done more fully in our own lives, our own families, that it would come more fully in our our neighborhoods, uh, personally, the neighborhoods around us and in uh, the city of Muncie. May you bring human flourishing for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week, and I will see you next week for part two of this.